sermon series is the best is yet to come, part 21. That just blows my mind. I cannot believe we've been in Revelation this long, and yet we're not done. So here we go, right? All right, let's do this. Um, so there is a story, as the story goes, there is a detective in Scotland Yard. And this detective was the best there was at figuring out if a, if a currency was counterfeit or not. He was the best. And he solved another case, I guess, and the reporter came up and asked him, he said, how come you're so good at figuring out if the piece of currency is counterfeit or not? What are you doing? How, how can you even study the counterfeit money if it's not even available until you find it? How do you do that? And he said, well, it's pretty simple, really. He says, I just study the real thing so much and so long that when I see something that's not the real thing, it becomes obvious. And that's the point I want to make today. When you look at somebody who claims to be Messiah, who claims to be the Christ, the Savior of the world, how will you know if they are or not? And that may seem easy and obvious to us because we may think, well, you know, if he's not wearing robes and doesn't have a beard and, you know, all the Middle Eastern look, then it's probably not him. What if he looks like that? How will you know? Again, I think you and I think this is not going to be very difficult. But when we read Revelation 13, what you're going to see is it's very difficult. And it's something that we have to prepare for. Because, as you know, the truth is not always clear anymore. You read it online, or you're reading it online, or watching the news, or whether you're watching a movie, it doesn't matter if it's a YouTube video or a Disney movie. It's hard to know if what you're seeing is true. We complain more and more, gosh, I wish, I wish that I could just tell if this politician is telling me the truth or if this judge is saying what is right or this police officer or anybody in authority. Could I just get a straight answer and know with confidence it's true? Now throw in the religious leaders and you really have a problem, don't you? Right? How do you know you can trust me, right? I mean, we have to be discerning. How do we do that? What's the standard? What do we hold up as truth so that we can compare what we're hearing to it and discern and decide, is what I'm hearing something I can count on? This is the point today. You and I, if we're here during whatever last days are mean, and whether it's a literal seven years or a figurative seven years, if we're here, you and I are going to be tempted to believe in the counterfeit. Believers are going to be tempted to believe in the counterfeit. Okay, the rest of the world, they're just going to buy it. It's going to be real easy for them to go, yeah, Savior, I mean, just look what he just did. Look what he just said. He's amazing. Or if it's a, yeah, it could be a she, I don't know. But we're going to be tempted. And Jesus says that that's part of the reason why he actually shortens the last days. So we don't have that battle as long as we might that it doesn't cost us as much as it might. Before we go to Revelation 13 and begin reading there, I want to take you to John 8. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32. And here's why I want you to hear this. Because I think you and I, 
are probably in a group of Christians in America that would probably say, if I asked you the question, first of all, do you believe in God? You're going to go, yeah, I believe in God. Probably still, even as things slide, slide downhill, we're probably still at 75% of Americans would say, I believe there's a God. They might think they're him, but that's beside the point. Widest, broadest definition, people think there's a God. Okay, most people do. If I asked you if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I would say most Christians would say, I believe it's the Word of God. And that can mean a lot of different things, and a lot of people mean a lot of different things by that. But if I was to follow you around for a week and watch how you live out your day from sunup to sundown, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, I wonder if there would be any reason for me to believe that you believe the Word of God is the Word of God. That it is the very words of God spoken to us, for us, for our benefit. Now, then I would say a smaller group of us believe the Word of God is the Word of God. We read it, but there's still a pretty big gap between what we say we believe as we read it and how we live. Okay? That gap is called the, the part that God wants to close through the process of sanctification. Okay? Fancy word for discipleship or becoming like Jesus. Okay? I say I want to live for Christ and die for Christ. Yeah, but when I'm tempted, I'm down here somewhere. I'm not there yet, all right? I'm not consistently headed there even, okay? But if you and I are going to be able to recognize evil people, evil systems, evil worldviews, evil processes in our world, we've got to be able to tell the, the lies from the truth. And the only source that can give us that is God's word. And if we do that by faith, by grace through faith, knowing that God's Spirit is there, ready and willing to help you comprehend, remember, and apply it, then you and I have hope. And the reason it's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God plus the people of God is that our job is to encourage one another in that effort as long as we are here to do that together. That's why the church matters. Okay? That's what it means to make disciples, okay? It's not just something I go away and do by myself. It doesn't mean there's a value in that, but the Bible and the church and our faith walk is meant to be lived in community together. John 8 says this. Jesus is speaking to, it says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, we typically hear that last part. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we're like, yes, I want to be free. I mean, after all, let freedom ring, right? I mean, that's, that's huge. Everybody wants freedom and liberty, but it's not talking about that kind of freedom. It's talking about the better version, the kind of freedom you can have when you're in prison, the kind of freedom that no one can take from you. That's what kind of freedom he's talking about here. So then we go to the verse and we go, yes, then you will know the truth and truth will set you free. And I know the truth. It's the Bible. But that's not what the verse says. The verse does not say, and you will know that there's a Bible and that will set you free. That's not what sets us free. It's that you will know the word, okay? But it's not just saying, then you will know the words that are in the Bible and that will set you free. No, no, no. It's more than that. There's two pieces that that doesn't include. The first piece you've heard me say many, many times, and that is 
that you don't just know the word, but you do it. You, you actually act on what you know is true so that when we do follow you around for a week, not that anybody's going to do that, okay, but if we were to do that, we would see you living it out. That would become the pattern of your life. Not with perfection, but that would be your pattern. And then the other piece is this. There's the written word, which the Holy Spirit brings to life, and it's powerful to change lives. And then there's the living word. Jesus, who lived in history and fleshed it out. And the word became flesh. He moved into the neighborhood. Okay? And and we have that. So we have that, and we have that in the words, because obviously we don't have Jesus walking around. But yet we do in the body of Christ. It's just not, you know, the perfect Son of God version, right? Even though we're able. So let me go back through it and say this. If you hold to my teaching, what does hold mean? It doesn't mean just know it here. It means know him and it here. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth. So if you want to know how you're going to recognize the true Messiah from a false Messiah, it comes from knowing the true Messiah. Intellectually, logically, archaeologically, prophetically. I could go down the list historically, but you need to know him personally. You need to know him personally. That's the process the Bible calls being born from above or being born again. And it's, it's recognizing there's a God, you're not him, but I sure need him. And I want to be ready to meet him when he comes. And therefore, I must believe that he's not just somebody who lived in history and died on a cross, but that he's alive today and wants to know me and walk with me and, and walk and work through me. So it's not enough to know the words of Jesus as important as the word is. We need to know the ways of Jesus. The words give us his wisdom and his truth, what he said and and how he said it. The way tells us how he lived it out and how he passed it on. And the works, of course, demonstrate that in power through his miracles. And that's what he's calling us to do. All of those things. All of those things he's calling us to do. So I'm just right up front, right out the chute. If you don't get any other application today, this needs to be the priority of your life. And when I say it, I mean it's not just that you carry it around. It's not that you maybe page through it once in a while. It's that it becomes the centering point of your life. It's not just a map. It's your compass because it points to true north. And you orient your entire life around what it says so that you might look and be like the one it's talking about, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Now, let's turn to Revelation 13, and let's see what the fake looks like, because he's coming. Let me introduce you to Mr. Antichrist. In this passage, he will not be called Antichrist. Antichrist, uh, John uses that name when he talks about him in 1 John, and when he talks about him in the book of John, but he does not use that name here, because again, the, the book of Revelation is highly symbolic, and it pulls imagery from the Old Testament to help people picture, not necessarily what it looks like, but what it means, okay? Like we say, skull and crossbones, when we see that on a bottle, we think, that's poison, okay? It's not a picture of poison, it's a symbol of poison. Same thing through here. 
starting in verse 1, we are reminded from chapter 12 that there's a dragon, and that is the symbol for who Satan is. He's vicious, he's huge, he's angry, and he's coming for you, okay? The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, okay? And the sea is traditionally and historically known as a place of dark chaos, and perhaps that's why this next thing is going to happen coming from the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and it had ten horns, seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Verse 2, the beast saw, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Okay, and we can, I'll come back to that. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? So let's pause there. This is a weird chapter. Okay, it just sounds bizarre because of the symbolism that's there. But again, it's there to help us understand what is being meant. Remember, John isn't just trying to describe something to the people in that day. He is doing that. But he's also trying to describe something that can be understood 2,000 years later, today, or another 1,000 years in the future even. And through symbolism that is backed up by the old scriptures, that can be locked in and not changed regardless of culture. Does that make sense? Because sometimes things change because of the culture we live in. This locks us in so that we don't lose sight of that. We don't get confused by that. All right? So the dragon represents Satan, who is obviously he has tried to take over the throne of God and failed, and he's been thrown to the earth and given freedom to wreak havoc on the earth for a season. He introduced sin into the world. He tempted Adam and Eve. Well, he tempted Eve. Eve was deceived and bought the lie. And the rest is now sin enters the world through, through all people, with the exception of Jesus himself. Now, Satan has cho- is choosing to work through somebody. He's imitating God. Satan, it cannot, he can't create anything from nothing. He cannot create anything from nothing. Nobody can do that but God. But he is sure going to try to fake it. And so one of the things he's going to imitate, you'll see even more next week, is God has the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, he's going to have his unholy Trinity, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet will be the three. Okay? The second two are both referred to as beasts at times. In this case, we have the beast out of the sea. The rest of the chapter we'll talk about next week, we'll talk about the beast off the earth. Okay? I don't know if that has anything to do with... Um, Leviathan and behemoth that Job refers to. I don't know if there's a connection to that. I find that interesting because one's from the sea and one's from the earth, but I, I don't know that it matters, except that this is the, this idea of a beast. So John is writing Revelation to Christians who live in a time and a day when the leader of their nation, the emperor of the Roman Empire, which is where most Christians were, um, was severe persecutor of Christians. Okay? He's persecuting them, killing them, whether it was putting them in, in to feed them to lions in front for fun, in front of the, in the gladiator rings, or whether it was making them into human torches, or whatever. 
Okay? Um, we had Nero at one point. Now we have Domitian, who is the emperor at this time. Okay? So Christians understand persecution, and they're thinking this is all playing out in their lifetime. They read the book, they read the book of Revelation thinking, we're going to see the end one way or the other in our lifetime. Now, that didn't happen because it's bigger than that, and God is wanting to save more people than that, and so he's delaying up to a point so that he can re- reach all the nations. He wants to reach somebody from every tongue, tribe, nation, um, and language. So uh, we have the beast coming out of the sea. Now, this one sounds very similar to the way the dragon was described with one ex- difference, and it was the number of, I think it's the number of crowns. Um, you have horns, we have heads, and we have crowns. And basically, they, they represent, hedge, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, heads represent intelligence, horns represent power, and crowns represent authority. Okay, and if there's multiple ones, then there's more power, more authority, more um, intelligence, okay? So not only is the dragon smart, but now we have he's, he is sending out this beast. He's calling this beast up from the sea, and, and he's making it so that he will represent Satan well as the beast, okay? Now he'll be, we will refer to him in other places in the Bible. We see him as the Antichrist. Now when we hear the word Antichrist, a lot of different definitions pop to the mind. Maybe there's basically four ways it's used in Scripture. The first way is the Antichrist, capital A, the, whoever person. He's going to look like a, probably a man, but may not be, but he's probably going to look like a person who is in power politically, but maybe kind of transcends a particular nation. And he's going to have a momentum that comes to it that the world will just be swept up with him for whatever reasons. But it'll probably have to do with a combination of charisma um, and, and display of power, supernatural power. Okay. Then there's the Antichrist, little a, and that is leaders in our past and present who do anti-Christian things in the way that they lead. For example, Adolf Hitler is a great example of, and a lot of people thought in the day that he was the Antichrist, but here we are. So, um, and maybe some still do, I don't know. There's also two other categories that are a little more vague. One is kind of this spirit of the world, this evil spirit of the world that exists and that really the world is anti Christ at some level, and then there's the, the the empires or the governments that kind of function that way. Think of communism, which is there's no religious freedom in communism. That's an example of a system that's designed to be anti-Christ, anti-religion even. So those are kind of the four categories. Now, as we walk through this, let's let's. Uh, what I want you to see is, I want you to see this is how it's describing the beast and what he's going to do. Okay, and you need to. F- kind of feel what's coming, okay? Because if we're here when this happens, then we'll witness some of this, okay? But don't miss the point. The point is, how will we recognize him? Will it be as obvious as it is when we read this? Right now, when we read this, we're like, yeah, he looks like a guy with with horns, and he's got all these heads, and how could I miss a hydra-looking creature? I mean, that would be pretty obvious here, but he's not going to look like that because this is symbolic. He's going to be like that, but he's not going to look like this. He's, Satan is crafty. He's smart. He knows how to deceive. That's his job description. Adversary, enemy, deceiver, father of lies. Okay? All right, so let's look at what it says. Now he's going to use some imagery pulled from the book of Daniel that is going to point to other nations, and I'll point them out as we read in verse 2. The beast I saw resembled 
a leopard. Now, we already heard it described as a dragon, so, so like the dragon, so keep in mind, it's all symbolic. The leopard represents the kingdom of the Greek empire, and if you remember, like a leopard's quick, uh, Alexander the Great was a great conqueror, and he did that with speed, among other things. So it, it resembled a leopard, but it had feet like a bear. That's the Medo-Persian Empire that actually defeated the Babylonian Empire, which is the third, but it had a mouth like that of a lion. That represents Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember maybe that name. And so he's referring to past empires that have been antichrist-like. But this guy is taking all the strengths of each of those kingdoms, speed and power and brutality, and they're all in one person. And the way that he will lead will encompass these traits. Then it says the dragon gave the beast three things, his power, his throne, and his great authority, so that he can basically act as Satan, even though Satan's not in view. But who does that sound like, right? God the Father gave Jesus his power and his authority and his throne. Now, let's, let's not, there is a difference, right? The beast is a created being, Jesus is not. Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh as the Son of God, okay? So he didn't not have power and then was given power. He is power. He, he is the power. There's no giving Jesus power. Other than, other than when Jesus walked on the earth and Jesus emptied himself, and then the only time he had power was as God gave in that time because he chose to become human. And you can't be, you can't, practice the glory of God as a human. You can't be omnipresent as a person, right? God's omnipresent, but you can, a person can only be in one place at a time. So he, that's why he emptied himself of the, a lot of that glory so that he could be human for a season until he went to the cross. All right? So then it says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have, now this is, again, another clue as to who he's imitating. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And you can translate the word healed as resurrected. Sound familiar? Who do we know that was mortally wounded, it appeared, and yet resurrected? Jesus on the cross and after. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And Jesus, of course, wants people to, to follow him in the wake of the resurrection. And so you see the imitation and the, the counterfeit happening. Verse 4, people worshipped the dragon See, they worship Satan because he had given authority to the Antichrist, the beast, and they all also worshiped the beast, the Antichrist, and asked, who is like the beast? Who is like this Antichrist? And who can wage war against it? If you read your Old Testament, you know there's many times when Scripture says, uh, who is like our God? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord God Almighty? And it's a rhetorical question. There's nobody like him. So again, he's trying to... So do you see the, the attempt and the desire on the part of Satan is to deceive the world into believing that he is God and this Antichrist is his Messiah and the, beast is, the second beast is some prophet that's going to serve the Messiah that's serving Satan. That's the whole reason he tried to conquer the throne in heaven, tried to become God and take his seat. It just shows how clueless he is to think that he could take God's chair. It's just so funny to me. Um, but it's serious. So verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months, three and a half years. 
It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, three things, three ways, to slander his name and slander his dwelling place and to slander those who live in heaven, so the heavenly beings. So he's going for everybody. And, oh, let's just throw this in on top of that. He was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. This will speak to verse 9 and 10. So, kind of like what we were talking about with the Memorial Day stuff, right? We know the Memorial Day is to remember the fallen. But it's also to remember that anyone who signed up for that was willing to be amongst the fallen, whether they ever fell or not. And that's really what we are as followers of Christ. We are all but crucified, right? If we understand what Jesus is calling us to do, he said he started with come and see, then he said come and follow, and follow included, oh, and I need you to come and die. Now, not every Christian is going to die on a cross. Not every Christian is going to die for their faith, but we need to have decided that we're willing to do that, to truly follow Christ. And that's where you find freedom. If you're not afraid to die, who can stop you? Think about it. If you're not afraid to die, that's what makes a suicidal person dangerous. They're they're willing to die. They're willing to kill themselves. And so they're so unpredictable because they can do things that a normal sane or a person that's in a good place won't do because they value their life. Well, if I'm a Christ follower to the point that I'm willing to live and die for Christ, then that makes me dangerous to the enemy. That's a good thing. It's scary. And we don't do it for attention. And there's a lot of people who've done some pretty nutty things, trying to be a, you know, calling themselves Messiah. And Jesus tells us in Mark 5 and 6, 13, Mark 5 and Mark 13, 5 and 6, there are going to be many people who are going to come and say, I'm he, follow me. He says, don't do it, don't buy it. Well, the fact that he has to say that to his disciples tells me there will be people who are going to come into our lives that will be convincing. So let's not sit back and be complacent. Jesus said over and over and over, watch out, be on guard, pay attention. These people are coming. They're in your world and they're going to come. And you have to be discerning. And what's the truth filter? How do we know? You know the truth when you know the word, which you, and you know the source of the word. You know him because you spent time with him. Right? How did you get to know your spouse? How do you get to know your boyfriend or your girlfriend? You spend time with them. You get to know them. You ask each other questions. You take an interest in them. You find out what do they like and what do they not like. That takes time, and it takes an intention to communicate. He continues. Um, verse, uh, let's see, verse 7, it was, it, it, the beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was uh, given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's right. That's our number four for every that's world and everybody in the world. He's got power over everyone because he, they're all convinced that he's their savior from whatever it is they need saving from at that time. And I promise you circumstances in the world will be in such a way that it will be easy for him to do this. The only protection against this deception is knowing Christ. 
It is the only protection. Being sealed by God and His Spirit comes when we trust and follow Jesus Christ. And we're born from above. The Holy Spirit pitches His tent in our hearts, sealing us until the day of redemption, where He finishes our salvation that He starts when we say, I do to Christ. Verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Now he's going to define who all inhabitants are. All those, I'm sorry, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Who's the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world? That's Jesus. Jesus has a book, and in it, it has names. Names that have been penned from before creation people that he's going to put his finger on and go, you deserve hell, you get life. You deserve uh, eternal damnation, you get life. Because I'm choosing to show mercy to you, to you, to you, instead of justice, which you all deserve. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to show mercy to some of us. It isn't because we're better. In fact, in many cases, just look at Israel, it's because we're worse. We're really not deserving of this gift. And yet God had his mercy, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ by grace through faith. Have you received that? You say, well, I don't know if I'm chosen. You, you know how you know if you're chosen? You receive the gift, and you'll find out. I love the way Spurgeon used to address this. Spurgeon would talk about the election of God and being chosen and predestination. Of course, everybody freaks out when you do that. I'm sorry, some people freak out. And then when you start talking about free will, the other people freak out. And he would go, Lord God, save the elect and elect some more. I love that heart. It's like, I don't know how it fits together, but it says in the book that he chooses, that he elects, that he predestines. And it also says, whoever believes in the name of the Lord, whomever. So be one of those. Trust and follow him. Right? Don't let religion tangle your feet. He's just, he's offering the gift. He's saying, he's got your name on it. Here you go. Appropriate the gift. Receive and believe and open it because you believe it's yours. Don't go, ah, it's not really mine. It's too good a gift. You would never get, he's God. He can afford it. Then it ends with these troubling words. Whoever has ears, let them hear. You might want to close your ears at this point. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now, why would God call us to patient endurance and faithfulness? Because there's going to be a time when some of us are imprisoned for our faith. And there's nothing we can do about it. And there's going to be a time when some of us die for our faith. There's nothing we can do about it except embrace it and realize to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's more of Christ. I don't know where you are on all this. I would like to tell you that I'm good with all this and I got this, but I don't. There are times when I just go, I don't know when I get there if I'm going to do that. So here's what I try to do in the meantime. I just say, I'm just going to try to follow the God and the things he puts in front of me now. I'm just going to try to say, yes, Lord. We, somebody mentioned a blank check um, earlier. That's what I want my life to be, a blank check to the Lord to say, you fill in whatever you want. If you want me to live for you, I'm going to do that. If you want me to die for you and living for you, I'll do that. But you're going to have to give me what I need to pull that off because I don't have it in me. 
And he goes, yeah, but my spirit's in you, and you have me. And therefore, you're an overcomer. You have overcome the world. Look back at Revelation 2, 3, 3, let's see. Sorry, I didn't plan it, so I have to find it. Maybe some two. In one of these letters to the churches, in multiple letters to the churches, well, I'll read this one, chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. There's some, see here the word of victory? And then there are other places where it refers to the church as overcomers, we, the, us as overcomers. We are victorious. You say, well, I don't get it. If we die, do we win? How, do we, how does that work? Did you see the cross? Right? Everybody, including his disciples, looked at the cross as a defeat. For three days, they were moping around. The guys on the road to Emmaus were telling the stranger, where have you been? Can you not see what happened? The whole house of cards has fallen. And he chastises them as he takes them through the old covenant. And he shows how he, all this was by plan and design. Prophecies fulfilled that were spoken of hundreds of years before they came to be. Jesus fulfills them. Now, that's just God's MO. He's going to bring victory in ways no one sees coming. And a lot of times they look weak, which is why Paul said, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And so when we are weak, when we are struggling, when we are suffering like the church in Revelation will be suffering, was suffering, what did they do? They knew they had already won, and so they lived like it. It's time we stop walking around acting defeated. Unless you're not a believer. Okay, if you're a believer in Christ, you need to walk around humbly victorious. Okay, that means there's a confidence there. There's not a swagger. There's not a, none of this. You're not looking down on anybody, right? We're just one beggar telling another beggar, beggar where to find food. That's the gospel, good news. But we've won. It's just got to play out. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have eyes to see what it looks like when there's a fake? Can you discern the truth from error? If you can't, then it's time that you took this book seriously. It's time that you didn't just put this in your head. Okay? That starts there, right? We memorize it. We hear it. We listen to it. We meditate on it. We, we read it and study it. But we live it got to live it or it's it's actually creating a problem and i'll end with this so in matthew 7 24 through 27 we have jesus ending his sermon on the mount which is his whole kingdom manifesto and he says at the end of all this amazing teaching about how we should live he says this parable two men built houses one built their house in the sand and one built his house in the rock and the man who built his house in sand is like the man who heard the word of God. But he didn't do it. He didn't live it. And storms came and the waters rose and the winds blew and the house fell in a great crash and it was destroyed. And the second man did the same thing except he built his house on a rock foundation, not a sand foundation. And the same storms came and the same waters rose and his house stood. Why? Because he not only heard the word of God, but he lived it. He held to it. And that is the truth that sets us free from fear and from deceit. 
And I tell you what, there's a lot of that going around. And it's time that we as Christians stopped running afraid with our tail between our legs, and it stopped buying into the lies that our culture is throwing at us. And, and spend time here so that when you see the lies, you can recognize them for what they are and stop living in fear. That needs to stop. Let's stop, okay? It's a whole lot better to live free. Nobody can take that freedom from you. It's only when you surrender it that you lose it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we think about this, we're challenged because we feel so weak. We feel afraid. We feel like we don't know what to do. God, you've made it really clear that the enemy is at work around us and he's only going to ratchet up his game until you step in and stop him. He can only go as far as you allow it. God, you are sovereignly in control. Nothing changes that. But you have allowed it because we started it by disobeying your very first words. And so we're, the consequences of that temptation and that fall, the consequences are what we're living with today. But it's not forever. This life is just a vapor. It's just a mist. It's just a heartbeat until we step into the rest of eternity. God, we thank you that that's true. But Lord, I pray that we not live like this is all there is. That we would realize this is just the beginning. That we would trust you with our eternity knowing that the best truly is yet to come when we trust and walk with you. So Lord, I pray for those in the room and all listening online and watching. That I pray that right now your seeds of faith would take root in hearts that are tilled and broken and understanding enough to know I can't do this without somebody helping me that's bigger than me. And that they would believe that the answer is your son, Jesus Christ, and that salvation comes by no other name because you are the way and the truth and the life, and that your Messiah is the Messiah. There is no other king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we gladly submit to a good and gracious king who is holy and just, but also merciful and loving, that we find ourselves in the midst of a kingdom ruled by that awesome king. Who wouldn't want to receive that salvation, that rescue? And yet people push back. And so, God, I pray right now for those who have white knuckles because they're hanging on to whatever it is they think is more important and valuable than that, that you would open their eyes to see the truth that sets them free. Remove the darkness. Fill them with your light that they might see for the first time. And when they see the reality around them, they'll recognize it for what it is, the deception and the corruption that Satan is pouring out everywhere, but that, that you can see past that, that God, you are restoring all things under the Christ who is the head, and that as your people, we get to be a part of that future. Lord, help us to see that, help us to believe that when we are tempted to be deceived and tricked and to give up and be discouraged. May we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, because he knew that through that suffering came redemption for us. May we realize that in our suffering, it is momentary, and that one day there will be no more forever. Thank you for that hope and that truth. Thank you that you're preparing a place for us right now. May we be receptive so that we might receive it, believe it, and tell others how they can too. 
Christ's name we pray.